Leno Hawker looked across the circle at the German pilot. After 30 minutes of fighting, it had become obvious that this was no ordinary dogfight. Hawker had finally met his match. Low on fuel, low on altitude, and low on options, Hawker looked back across the circle and gave the German a little wave. And Manfred von Richthofen, the Red Baron, waved back. I'm Brass. And I'm Mr. Chow. And because we've never been in a dogfight with the Red Baron, this podcast isn't about us. It's about the extraordinary fighter pilots who've come before us. Welcome to Fight History. All right, guys, welcome back to Fight History. And before we even get started, a little congratulations are in order. Mr. Chow, hired by a major airline. Big deal for a guard pilot. You excited to start your training for them? Very excited. Yep. Uh, headed out tomorrow, driving across the country, spending the holidays in Iowa, and then on to Denver for a couple months. And uh, Mrs. Chow was very excited that right before you leave, we decided to film or record another podcast. So Ecstatic, actually. She's, yeah. uh, I told her she's not allowed to walk around upstairs because it makes too much noise and it ruins our podcast. So instead of packing or taking care of the child, she has to sit in one place. Yep. So maybe not husband of the year, but maybe wife of the year. Yes. Um, and a little congratulations are in order for me. Not because I did anything um, like get hired at an airline. I just had a really sick sortie the other day. Uh, so a shout out to Vice, another pilot a friend of ours who just had his Finney flight, which means this is his last flight uh, at our base before he moves on to another one. And we ended up doing sort of a gun-only defensive counter-air sortie, almost like a throwback to World War One, where we were just out there raging around over the White Mountains in New Hampshire Gun only, 500 knots, mox not, just having fun and reminding my, myself like this is actually the coolest job in the world that we have. Um, and the other thing that's pretty cool is we've been starting to get some feedback uh, for the podcast. And uh, you got some feedback in particular, Mr. Chow, that I liked. You want to go with that? I did. I mean, I guess technically it wasn't feedback. It was uh, like pre-feedback uh, because she said it before she actually listened to the podcast. Uh, but the feedback was... What could I possibly want to hear you talk about? <laughs> yeah, I imagine if someone doesn't want to listen to you in person, they're probably not going to download something uh, to listen to you. Uh, but that's pretty good. I mean, overall, I'd say the podcast has been a little bit, you know, the feedback's been a little bit more positive than that. Uh, and if you guys do have any feedback for us, uh, please, you know, just send us a comment on, you know, uh, our website at fighthistory.com, fithistory.com. And if you're enjoying it, please subscribe. Tell your friends. If you don't like the show, uh, just lie. Tell your friends it's great and still tell them to subscribe. And today should be a good show for you guys. Uh, we're doing our first Englishman, which we'll, is great. We'll let them be the judge of that. but Yeah, we'll let them be the judge. But we do get to do our first Englishman, and we get to do them together. So who knew? That should be fun. And uh, we have Always a very exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And um, we have a very English Englishman to kick off uh, the war uh, for the British. Uh, so today we're uh, taking on Leno Hawker, and he was born in his family's ancestral home of Long Parish in 1890. And I have always wanted my own ancestral home. What right. would you What would you do at an ancestral home? Uh, I imagine I would go there to sit and play with my toys, um, but maybe hunt, right? And maybe I would have a hawker. Like his family actually raised hawks for the royal family. I don't hunt. I just imagine if I had an ancestral home, I would. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I would probably have a receiving hall so people can come and pay their respects, 
like The Godfather, you know? Maybe I'm mixing up Mafia and uh, the royal families, but that's how I imagine uh, it would work for me. And uh, the other thing that uh, Hawker's ancestors provided the royal family besides Hawks uh, is uh, military men. Uh, it literally reads like Lieutenant Dan's family in Forrest Gump. There was just a hawker in every military engagement for the British going back to the 1600s. And uh, Leno's father was no exception in that. So in uh, 1900, uh, Leno's father got pulled into the Boer War. And it sounds like I'm saying that wrong, but we looked up the pronunciation on that one. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that's correct. And that was in South Africa. And so Leno had to get pulled into Switzerland. So his family uh, moved to Geneva to live with uh, some relatives. And what's important here is that the Boer War was not very popular on the continent. And so the British were not very popular in Geneva at the time. And so Leno and his younger brother uh, Tyrell, uh, and we'll just call him T for the rest of this because that's what they call him in the book, they end up getting to a lot of fights with the Swiss children. And a lot of times it was like 12 against the two of them. So it was like six or seven to one. And have you ever seen the movie The King on Netflix? It's I haven't, no. Timothy Chalamet. So it's kind of funny. He has like a French guy playing the English king and then has Robert Pattinson playing a French king. But Classic. Anyways, the point is in that movie... Uh, Timothy Chalamet is playing, you know, King Edward or Richard or Henry or something. And they're fighting this French force that outnumbers them. And he gives them this speech and he says, fight for the space between you. Make it solid. Make it England. And then they like launch into the battle. Right. And that's basically what Leno Hawker is doing against these Swiss children. They literally say he cries England and then runs into the fray. And so it's like very dramatic sense for these kids fighting each other. And a little bit different than uh, Garros, who befriended the the kids in the the places that he was living, like when he was living in Vietnam, right? Right. They might be a good foil to each other. Garros is like the playboy. He's very friendly. He's suave with the women. And Hawker, he changes his accents to to fit in. But that's that, right. Yeah. That there's there's precedent for that. Yeah. There, there is precedent. Uh, maybe Slip uh, went to the school of Roland Garros. It's possible. But. Yeah, Hawker is not quite so suave, but boy, he's a courageous son of a bitch, and like he will never back down from a fight. And you start seeing that when he's just a kid. But he's only in Switzerland for a couple of years. Uh, his parents sent him back to the Stubbington House, which was a Navy prep school. And uh, he basically, he fits in a lot better with the English kids. They call him Jolly Old Hawker. The problem for Leno is he had this undiagnosed uh, blockage in his nose. And so when he gets sick, the blockage kind of makes things worse for him. He actually strains his heart, and he gets more or less let go from this Navy prep school because of his poor health. I thought it was because he was a bad singer. Well, there's also that. <laughs> he did join the choir, and the quote here is that he was always yards off the note, and that's something that hits near and dear to my heart because uh, it's more or less describing how I sing. Yeah, I've heard you sing before. Yeah, a little bit more on that later on, actually, for me. Uh, but it's funny, he has this captain whose literal name is Captain Good Enough, and it's spelt exactly good enough. And he writes about Leno that he's as plucky a little beggar as you could wish and always trying, but not over strong. And he almost reminds me of like a young Teddy Roosevelt who was trying to overcome his 
for Teddy, lack of... Teddy Roosevelt was always sickly as a kid, right? Yeah, he had asthma. He was sickly. He was always trying to overcome his like physical weakness by just being the toughest guy around. And that's more or less what I'm getting from a no hawker. So he's let go, but he's still a young man. I mean, he's only like 12 years old at this point. Young man, I mean, he's a kid. Uh, and so he's let go. Um, but when he's home, and he's just now back home in England, he sees the Wright brothers fly in 1906 in a, at a cinema. He's immediately swept up in sort of aerodynamics and building model airplanes. And he still wants to join the military. So he joins the Royal Military Academy when he's 16. 16 he's trying to become an engineer. And as he joins this academy, a doctor checks out his nose, sees the blockage, is able to fix it, and like Leno's vitality just skyrockets and he becomes a much more healthy young man. And as he's at the academy, uh, there's a few key things that happen. The first thing is he meets his best friend, this guy Gordon Bailey. And more importantly, he meets Gordon Bailey's sister, which must have been an awkward conversation because he just falls in love with Gordon's sister. Love at first sight, just for Leno. The sister, Beatrice, has no idea that Leno's in love with her. And uh, he just has this quiet admiration. The next big thing that happens... That sounds creepy when you say it that it's way. A, it's creepy. He doesn't... I don't think he does it necessarily a creepy way. We'll let the listeners decide as this story plays out. Um, it's only creepy if you're ugly. If you're good-looking... It's romantic. Romantic. Yeah. That's what I've yeah. learned from romantic comedies. Um, the other big thing that happens, though, is that he gets his pilot's license. So he starts flying. It sounds very similar to the other guys. He's, he's flying these little airplanes. As Roland Garros would put it, he only flies when the smoke rises straight up from a cigarette. Right? But he is able to get his ticket, as they call it. And so in May of 1913, he gets his ticket by flying two figure eights, climbing to 400 feet. And then later that year, he gets the call up to go get stationed in Cork, Ireland as an engineer now that he has graduated from the academy. And the important thing is because he's getting stationed in Ireland, he decides it's his chance to shoot his shot with Beatrice. And so he goes up, he proposes, and it doesn't go so well. She's basically like, thanks, but no thanks, my creepy older brother's friend. And it did remind me of a story, Mr. Chow, not of your proposal, hmm. but you had a dry run in your proposal. And I believe there's a story. <laughs> I believe there's there a, is a story. Yeah. There's a story about a dead whale and a rock. Yeah. Do you want to go with the highlights on that real quick? Well, I mean, I think, I think all of our listeners would agree that if you find, I mean, we actually didn't know it was a dead whale at the time, but there was like some kind of massive, just like blob of something on the beach. And this is, uh, this is down at, in Block Island, which is a little island off the southern coast of uh, Connecticut. Um, and uh, we flew out there, uh, our buddy Heckler, my buddy Heckler and, and myself, and uh, as one does, we're driving mopeds around the island and uh, sounding more and more ridiculous now that I'm telling the story. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we... we no, you we, took your buddy Heckler out you, to go practice this proposal that's, run. That's, that's totally that's normal, dude. T- totally normal. Uh, and so we're driving our mopeds around the island uh, and we're looking for romantic spots, you know, and, uh, we find these cliffs on the Southern part of the Island. And we walked all the way down to the beach at the bottom of these cliffs. And I'm like, really liking the vibe here. Right. Um, but then we find this blob along the beach, not sure what it is, but rather than like going up and touching it, you know, maybe it's toxic. Maybe there's something I'm, you know, I'm erring on the side of caution here. 
I decide to take a really large rock. Uh, it's probably like a, you know, 40 pound rock and just throw it at this blob and see what happens. Right. <laughs> yeah. Of course, as one does, as one does. And turns out what happens is that the, the blob explodes and I basically get a nice big squirt of rotten whale uh, right, <laughs> right on my shirt. Um, and it just smells absolutely horrible. And poor Heckler has to ride with me in the plane that we rented from Northampton all the way back, uh, which takes like an hour and a half and a little Cessna. Yeah, actually, my favorite part is the part you left out, which is you went to uh, the, the restaurant you planned to take uh, your <laughs> wife to. And they were like, God, get out of here. <laughs> you smell literally like a dead whale. That's right. I actually bought a T-shirt from that restaurant. <laughs> Uh, and changed into it because uh, my unsuccessful attempt to go and wash my shirt in the bathroom and use the hair dryer, uh, it's just still smelled terrible after that. Yeah, so, so uh, that's one of my favorite stories of all time. And uh, I guess the point is, Leno's, uh proposal didn't go well, but it didn't go as bad as your romantic day with Heckler. Uh, so he's got that to live up to. And like, uh, you know, one other thing we can see about Leno's character here is I think it's very easy if you were to propose and the woman was like, yeah, no, thanks, but no thanks. It's probably easy to get vindictive and maybe a little jaded, but not Leno because he's a good dude. So he writes to his sister after the proposal. Can you imagine my feelings when, on declaring my emotions, acute distress spread itself over the face of the one person I would do anything to shield from pain, worry, and trouble? So he's not, you know, jaded or uh, he doesn't have a grudge at all. And he continues his quiet admiration of Beatrice, who will come up throughout our story. And Leno begins work in Ireland. And as he's doing that, he's continuing to apply to the Central Flying School. Because even though he got his ticket that was completely on the civilian side on his own, he still needs to apply to the Central Flying School to join the RFC, which was the Royal Flying Corps. And as he's doing that, Gordon actually gets his ticket first. And then on July 30th, just days before the start of World War I, Leneau received his order to report to the Central Flying School and begin his flight training. And now we're going to go break, break. We're going to take us a little break from Leno Hawker real quick, and we're going to talk about England's road to war because it's absolutely fascinating to me. When we talked about Germany and France going to war, it kind of made sense, right? They're hereditary enemies. Literally, Caesar is talking about the Germans crossing the Rhine to invade Gaul, right? But Britain and Germany, that's a little different. Like, if you think about it, the Isles are, are populated by the Anglo-Saxons. Like, uh, Bolka and Immelman, they consider themselves Saxons, right? The British are Anglo-Saxon. They, they have a common heritage, right, and common ancestor. And the English language is actually a Germanic language. It's not a Romance language like, you know... France's or French's. And there's a whole lot of similarities between the two culturally and even the royal family. This one's fascinating to me. So the Windsor family is who's in the royal family today. And it's the same family uh, in 1914, but the name is not Windsor. The name in 1914 is the Sachs Coburg Goethe family, right? It's a German name. They changed it in World War I to sound less German. And even Kaiser Wilhelm II is Queen Victoria's grandson. So you have all this intermixing between England and Germany. And their cooperation in military matters is established as well. You know, they, they teamed up against Napoleon just a hundred years earlier to fight the French. And so you have all this established cooperation. 
But what happens is, and have you ever played the game Settlers of Catan, Mr. Chow? Uh, yes. Yeah, and I'm going to expose myself as a nerd. Love the game. It's a lot of fun. But what happens in the game is usually one person gets out to a fast start, and then the rest of the players are like, we can't trade with this guy. We all have to team up against him, right? Well, that's essentially what happens to the Germans in the late 19th century. They're way out ahead of everybody else, and they start to spook everybody, including England, because England doesn't want any country to be dominant on the continent. And so uh, they start to kind of distance themselves from Germany. And then the straw that breaks the camel's back, uh, as far as the Germans getting um, England on their side for the war, is that they start to build a large navy. And Bismarck, who was known as the Iron Chancellor, actually told the Kaisers, like, hey, we have to start appeasing people. Once they unified as a country, he saw the writing on the wall that people were going to start to ally against them. And so he said, listen, we can't build a large navy because it's going to make England our enemy. But the Kaisers didn't listen to him. And actually, in an ironic way, to emulate the British, who at this point were the British Empire, right? They literally owned 20% of the world's land masses, all of Canada, all of India, all of Austria, Austria, Australia, rather. There's always an L in there. Um, isn't there like literally a desk in Austria? I think there's a whole whole room. In the, were we talking about this? The, yeah. There's in the airport there for people who, who show up in Austria thinking they're going to Australia. Yeah, exactly. I just made that classic mistake. Uh, anyways, they own all of Australia at the time. And so the Germans in an attempt to emulate the British literally build this large navy and end up getting Britain on the other side now because Britain is now threatened by Germany. Uh, Churchill even says... You know, the British Navy is to us a necessity, and the German Navy is to them a luxury. So, right. so it sounds like Bismarck would is kind of unhappy with this large Navy, which to me makes it ironic that then a massive battleship gets named after him. <laughs> That's right. Well, there's a lot of irony in history, especially for those who don't study it, right? And so anyways, the point is that the Germans just, they do enough to uh, spook the British. And now the British are like, okay, who do we turn to? And the French are spooked enough that they go, let's make this uneasy alliance between us, even though historically we've been at each other's throats. And that's why it's actually called an entente. It's called the entente cordiale. It means like, quote unquote, friendly. Oh, my God. Friendly? Friendly. I'm so friendly. Um, sorry. Uh, it's friendly relations is more or less what it comes down to. It wasn't a strong alliance. It just meant we're not going to be at each other's throats anymore. And so it's not even that that brings the British in on the side of the French. It's actually a, uh, a treaty they have with Belgium that guarantees Belgium neutrality. And so when, as part of the Schlieffen Plan, Germany invades Belgium, that's when the English actually get pulled into World War I. And what's, I think, a great anecdote to this whole thing is that when England declares war on Germany on August 4th, 1914, you had the German national rugby team in London playing a tournament and they were having a party with the British national team. And when war was declared, they both kind of looked at each other and go, well, what do we do now? And rather than getting into a big fight and killing each other, they decided that for them, the war wouldn't start for another day and they would just continue to party, right? Because the British and German people had no animosity. Have you ever been to a rugby party before? They're usually uh, 
I mean, it's fighting is, is yeah, part, that's part of, it of, part anyway, of the fun, so, right? Yeah. But they didn't exactly grab a knife and stab the other guy in the throat, right? They just had some fun. Um, that would be a good time. And so I just put that out because when you read about either the guys in the air or the guys on the ground, a lot of times they they didn't really have any hard feelings towards the other side between the British and the Germans. And you have like the classic Christmas truce. It's not that surprising when you put that into perspective, right? And what's cool is Leno had this really deep sense of honor. So when he found out that Germany had invaded Belgium, Belgium, he he wasn't concerned necessarily that like he might end up going to war. He was concerned that England wouldn't declare war, right? And his brother writes in the book that to them, dishonor would have been worse than destruction. He had a very deep sense of honor. And this brings me to sort of the next bit here, which I'm going to call sweeping generalizations brought to you by wide push brooms everywhere, okay? If you need to cover a lot of ground and you don't care about potentially offending people with some uneducated comments, this is sweeping generalizations. And my sweeping generalization is that in 2023, we literally don't understand the meaning of the word honor, right? Like they lived in an honor culture back in 1914. We don't have that anymore. And you almost don't hear honor in a non-cynical way or if someone's might be, they might use it in the, a title of a code or something, code of honor or the medal of honor, but people don't use it in their everyday speech like they used to. And there's a argument to be made that honor and duty were the first casualties of world war one and i think it is a it's a argument that stands up right it was hard to talk about an honorable war when people were getting gassed with chlorine gas and i think that it kind of died throughout that process and i want to go back to another anecdote here and this one is mr chow have you seen reservoir dogs quentin Car- Quentin Tarantino? Uh, it's, it's, it's been a minute. So I'll give a little recap. And if you haven't seen it, uh, it's like 30 years old now, so I don't think this counts as a spoiler. But in the movie, there's a diamond heist. And all these criminals who don't know each other are brought together to do the heist, and they're given code names. So you have like Mr. Orange, Mr. White, Mr. Blue, what have you. And right at the beginning, during the heist, the, the police show up like way too early, than more early than you'd expect. And so the criminals escape. They get back to this safe house. And Mr. Orange has been shot in the gut, so he's like lying in a pool of blood. And the rest of the criminals are trying to figure out how did the police show up so early. And they come to the conclusion that one of them must be a rat and one must be an undercover police officer. And then they try to figure out who it is. And Mr. White ends up defending Mr. Orange, who's lying in, his own, in a pool of his own blood the whole movie. And Mr. White defends him, first verbally and then like physically defends him and even kills a couple of the other guys defending Mr. Orange. Well, at the end of the movie, you hear police sirens. The police are about to, to break into the, the safe house. And Mr. Orange, who's being like held, like cradled by Mr. Mr. White, tells Mr. White, hey, it was me. I'm the cop. And then Mr. White takes a gun. He puts it to Mr. Orange's head. The police break in and kind of out of frame, you hear a gunshot. And what's fascinating, okay, is that American audiences, according to Tarantino, didn't really get the ending of the movie. Like, why would Mr. Orange tell this criminal that he was the cop right before he got saved? 
But when Tarantino screened the movie in Japan, the Japanese audience got it immediately because they have a deep sense of honor. Makes right? That makes sense, yeah. And they even have this word called jingri, which loosely translates to what you don't want to do but have to do. And I bring this up because I think if you view the No Hawker's actions in war through that Jingri concept, they make a little bit more sense because he's going to do some things that are like suicidally courageous. But you have to understand he does them because he has a deep, deep sense of honor. Yeah, I'm just kind of thinking of uh, the Jack Nicholson scene in A Few Good Men uh, where he's yelling at Tom Cruise and and asking him if he's going to pick up a weapon and stand on the wall. Who's um, going to do it? You, Lieutenant Weinberg. You, Mr. Chow. Yeah. Uh, he, he talks, he, uh, Jack Nicholson talks about honor as something other than a punchline, right? And I think that, you're right, that that is, in today's society, if somebody starts talking about honor, a lot of the time it's probably in an ironic way or in a joking way. Right. It's I think it's rare in our society for people to talk about honor in a very serious way. And I think that that's something, uh, too, that like the Marine Corps still capitalizes on for sure. And they're recruiting is like, hey, this is a place where you can come. And this word means something. Right. Um, and is that always true? No. Uh, but it it is a lot of the time. Uh, and I think that, that that's worth talking about. Yeah. It's kind of a shame that the line that people remember from that speech is you can't handle the truth because the rest of the speech fires me up. The rest of the speech, like I'm kind of on board with, with what Jack Nicholson's saying. Well, I think that's the point. I think that's what makes that scene so good is that you start listening to what Jack Nicholson is saying and you're kind of siding with him and not the, the snot nosed lawyer. Right. I know. And to continue my sweeping generalization here, um, I, I get a sense when I'm reading the letters from all these guys, uh, Leno Hawker and, and the rest, they were very, um, they were very genuine. And I think that they were very honorable and genuine. And there wasn't a whole lot of like sarcasm, and that stuff that comes out. And I think that when you leave that honorable, genuine, I'm going to be honest type of personality, you get what, you, what we have today, which is everyone's sarcastic. Everyone's cynical. Everyone's complicated. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's what we've gone to is like pragmatic, uh, kind of sense of things rather than this like genuine honorable sense of things. And maybe one's better than the other. Maybe it's not, I don't know, but that's my sense of things. Yeah. I think everything has its time and place, right? Like I enjoy that, uh, at like a roll call, there can be a great deal of sarcasm. That's true. I mean, well, that would be no fun without it. Right. And to a sense, like our culture, I guess wouldn't be very fun if everyone just said exactly what they meant. But at the same time, it is cool to see guys that really care and they don't care about being genuine and you seeing like their true selves and their letters and that sort of stuff. Uh, granted, they probably didn't think the world was going to read what they were writing home to their mom. So there's always that. True. Yeah. Leno wasn't worried about getting made fun of on TikTok like we are. So <laughs> that's true. Um, but either way, Leno did have a deep sense of honor and obviously that brought him into the military. And so as the war begins, he starts flying. He flies the Farman pusher plane which is actually the same type of plane that crushed Roland Garros's first Demoiselle. And he was way ahead of the game because of his study of aerodynamics. And so there's one anecdote where he's 
falling asleep in class and the teacher's going to make fun of him and then realizes Hawker's already answered every question correctly, even the ones that haven't been asked. So he's like, I'll let him sleep. He's also very early on, he's recognized the military potential of aviation, right? Which is not, which seems obvious to us now. Uh, but at the time, this there was it was this new invention that didn't necessarily have a place in warfare, and was it really worth the massive expense to build all these airplanes and everything? Right. I mean, this is before Garros even put the deflector plates on, so we're going back right to the start, right before they didn't. They really had no idea. The British are kind of behind the French in terms of realizing the potential of the airplane, and what we're going to see immediately as Garros hits the front lines is he has a very inventive mind, and he starts thinking of all these different ways to use the airplane. Before that happens, though, the British Army deploys across the channel. And there's one cool anecdote where the Kaiser said, ah, the British Army has arrived. We'll just send the German police to arrest them because it was such a small army in comparison to everyone else. And as the army arrives, his friend Gordon Bailey goes with the army as one of the first squadrons. And it's reported, at least in the book, that Gordon, unfortunately, is the very first casualty of the Uh, BEF, the British Expeditionary Force, when he shot down on a reconnaissance flight. And at first, he's just missing, and they don't know. Eventually, they do find out that Gordon has died. And so, like, before uh, Leno Hawker even crosses the channel, his best friend has already died in this war. And a lot of the other guys had, like, the August madness. They were crazy and swept up. They wanted to get to the front lines in this glorious war. Whereas for Hawker, I think he had a more mature understanding of what was going to happen. He writes to Beatrice, who, remember, is Gordon's sister, and he says, To us, Gordon will always be very much alive. This catastrophe, I refer to the war, will, I think, revolutionize thought. It will leave the world in mourning, for few will escape, but I think it will bring the other side much closer, and he is more or less correct in all of those things. Um, and then on October 3rd, 1914, Leno flies across the channel to Bruges with number six squadron. And he sends Beatrice the wedding ring and basically says, wait for me. And she's like, please don't come home. But <laughs> that's more or less where we're at. And uh, it's in October that Leno begins flying uh, recon patrols near Dunkirk, which is the site of the great evacuation early in World War II. And from the start, like I said, he's a very inventive pilot and he's a very aggressive pilot so he invents a few things he rigs steel darts under his plane that he could release uh, with the pull of a string imagine walking around and a steel dart lands on top of your nugget not the way i want to go he releases uh he rigs a bomb release mechanism and he always carries a rifle to attack german airplanes to just shoot them literally with a rifle and one of my favorite little anecdotes here is he's on a recon mission he flies over this french field the bomb release mechanism malfunctions and he literally drops a bomb on a French airfield and he has to go and apologize. (laughs) Sorry for bombing you. Luckily the bomb didn't go off. It was a dud, Uh, but he does bomb a French airfield. He loads the bomb and the, the darts back up. He takes off and he like flies over to wave to the French guys and they literally all take cover because they're afraid they're going to get bombed again. So it wasn't always a success. But he did have this very inventive mind. And you were saying something about young people and inventiveness before we started the podcast, Mr. Chow. Yeah, so I, I think it's interesting that a, a lot of inventors in history, a lot of the most creative minds, they do most of their work when they're very young. Like, I think Einstein was the same way. He's doing all this stuff in his 20s. Um, yeah, he was I mean, a Swiss patent clerk it, when it, he invented uh, or came up with relativity, I think. 
Right, right. It, it, which doesn't sound like a super creative job. But uh, the point is that I, I think that there's something about being young and not being constrained by all these preconceived notions uh, that society kind of kind of puts on us. And I think that applies to warfare as well. I think a lot of older folks at this time had preconceived notions about how a war is meant to be fought. And technology was changing rapidly at the start of World War One, And so things were changing. I mean, we talked about in previous podcasts the advent of the machine gun, of, you know, submarines, of uh, artillery, mustard gas, and now aviation. It's like things are changing very, very quickly. How does it all apply, you know? Yeah, and he was coming up with all sorts of things. Not all of them were good, but he has that mind, and a lot of them, he, they will end up becoming implemented. One of them, for example is in the fall, two of his airplanes get destroyed just by the high winds on the channel, and he invents this hangar, essentially, which becomes the standard hangar for uh, the RAF or the RFC at this time. And so, yeah, I mean, he has a very, very inventive mind, and and that's going to help him in his career. And on the 19th of October, the first battle of Ypres began, and that's basically... It was the end of the race to the sea. And so once the, mat- the Miracle of the Marne happens and you get some trench warfare, they, each side tried to outflank each other to the north, and eventually that just ended at the English Channel. There's a big battle there at Ypres, and that's where Leno Hawker is doing all of his recon missions um, initially. And it's very dangerous at this time. And it wasn't so much dangerous because of German planes, it was dangerous because of the anti-aircraft fire. Um, and the anti-aircraft fire at that time, uh, Hawker labels in uh, th- four different levels is what he called it. Level one was visible but inaudible. He said it was harmless and laughable. So you could see a white puff of smoke, couldn't even hear it, laughable. Uh, level two was visible and audible, still harmless but apprehensive. Three was a noisy cough, very nasty and dangerous. And four, he described as galvanized iron hit by a sledgehammer, shakes the whole machine, the limit. And at one point, a shell burst so close to him that he's left temporarily deaf uh, in his right ear, and he has a concussion that like lasts for weeks. So it was certainly quite dangerous, uh, and that's how his friend is actually killed, uh, you know, Gordon Bailey is killed by anti-aircraft fire. And so it's certainly uh, still dangerous. But more or less, Hawker finds himself flying these recon missions on the front on the front lines like we've talked about with other guys. He's dodging anti-aircraft fire. He's inventing things. And he's trying to perfect his skills as a pilot. And my favorite little anecdote here is that... You have a lot of favorite little anecdotes. I do have a lot of anecdotes, sorry. My favorite story... Should I switch it up here? My favorite story is that he's showing off his BE-2C, which was a two-seater observation plane, not very impressive, honestly. And he's showing it off for the French pilots, and one French pilot basically tells him, I bet you can't loop the loop, you know? And uh, Hawker writes about his attempt here. He says, Being inexperienced, I didn't pull it over quick enough, and so stuck at the top of the loop hanging upside down. All All sorts of funny things fell out. Signal lights, cartridges, mud, paper, oil, and petrol. And I was watching anxiously if my passenger would follow. So he still had the guy in the back seat when he tried this thing. And when you go over the top, if you're too slow, like we said, you can get into a tail slide and you get negative G. If you weren't strapped into an open cockpit plane, I mean, you could literally fall out of it. 
So not very comfortable. And my favorite part is he was determined to try the loop, however, or to actually loop the loop. And he says that his resolution was in no way impaired by a Frenchman who was a nut, a civilian pilot, and had looped. And he has to be talking about Adolphe Piguat. Uh, so Pigua is the guy who no one knew about, but he shows up in every one of these uh, stories that I read. There's always just one mention of him in everyone's biography, uh, which is so funny. I mean, you got to think that Pigua was flying before the war. He was putting on these aerial demonstrations in all of these different countries around Europe, uh, including in Germany. And so a lot of these guys that maybe weren't pilots before the war, or even if they were, uh, probably looked up to Pigua for his aerobatic flying in his demonstrations they did and although we knew nothing of him they knew everything about pigua uh, it's just so funny though that we called pigua like this guy's kind of crazy he's jumping out of airplanes he's doing the first loop uh, apparently no hawker felt the same way but still at this point hawker is just more or less an average uh, observation pilot except he's very aggressive and accidentally dropping bombs on french aerodromes he starts making a name for himself in the spring of 1915, specifically April 22nd. And at this time, the Zeppelins had been bombing England. So the Zeppelins are the big uh, blimps, essentially. So kind of Goodyear was going to the games and bringing a little present, right? And they were bombing England at night. And so they're kind of the boogeyman. There was a big moral effect of these Zeppelins bombing at night. And so Hawker gets tasked. Zeppelins and hypoxia, both boogeymen. Both boogeymen. They are. Uh and he gets tasked to just basically go over the lines and find these things and try to bomb their airfield. And so he takes off on April 22nd, not expecting to find much. But lo and behold, he does find a Zeppelin base. And one Zeppelin is even airborne at the time. So just armed with a rifle and some grenades, he circles around the Zeppelin. He uses the Zeppelin almost as a shield from ground fire because they're af afraid of hitting this huge blimp, right? And he drops all the way down to 200 feet under fire, actually, from the Zeppelin, who has machine guns on board. He drops down to 200 feet. He drops these more or less grenades on the Zeppelin sheds. He gets two direct hits, and then he's able to, like, hightail it out of there at 100 feet. He came back with holes all throughout his airplane. But he proved that the Zeppelins were in range of the RFC, and they had to move the Zeppelins back, at least temporarily. And so this is a huge success. He's awarded the DSO, or the Distinguished Service Order, and he's really starting to make a name for himself with the Zeppelin raid. Dude, it'd be so cool to shoot down a Zeppelin. I mean, I feel like that's something even I could hit if I had a forward-firing machine gun. Maybe not fly a machine or fly an airplane and, you know, like shoot a rifle at the same time. But give me an F-15, I could probably hit a Zeppelin. Um, it's hard to gun stuff that's slow, though. It is. I'd probably gun the Zeppelin and then fly directly into it. Um, but I think I would still gun it. I'd, I'd find a way to miss. But anyways, um, the next big event that happened for Leneau is that later that same month, the Germans begin the Second Battle of Ypres, okay, which began with the first gas attack. So it's the first time anyone in the war is using uh, chlorine gas. And it was a very successful, at least tactically, from the Germans because the lines just descend into chaos. And this makes observing very difficult. There's no longer, you know, this clear demarcation between good and bad guy. And Hawker has a very unique solution to this problem. So I'm going to let his words take it from here. 
It's a rather difficult proposition, placing the quote-unquote line, which is always shifting just now. But I think I've solved the problem with a simple and ingenious method. Fly low and draw their fire, then mark it down on the map. The result seems worth the obvious risk. And so this is what I'm talking about when I say Jingri, doing the thing you don't want to have to do, but you feel like you have to do. I mean, do you think you would do that, use that technique, Mr. Chow? I mean, so I, the direct answer is probably no. Uh, but on the ground side, uh, there's something similar. It's called a movement to contact. And it's basically you move along and you try to move very quickly and aggressively uh, until you take enemy contact and then you react to it. Uh, and in doing so, you figure out where the enemy is. Well, I hope your movement to contact worked a little bit better than flying so low that people just saw the markings on your airplanes and shot at you to figure things out. Because although he knew the obvious risk, the risk did come back to bite him. So a few days later, uh, Leno writes that it was while flying low over a big farm to the north of this bit that I received a bullet just above my left ankle that solved the problem of who held the farm. It now was, we know. It was remarkably painful at first, and I headed for home, but as soon as I could use my foot, I turned back to deny the Germans the satisfaction of having driven me off. So the guy's literally shot in the foot, goes, ah, maybe it's a good time to go home and land, and then decides, no, my foot still works. It's still attached to the end of my leg, so I'll just uh, go back, finish my observation, and say, screw it to the Germans, right? I freaking love that. Jingri. Jingri, right? And it's a little bit of like chip on his shoulder, you know, I'm never going to be driven off. I'm the toughest SOB around. And despite his leave, his injury, rather, he doesn't go on leave when he gets back. So he's offered medical leave. He's been shot. He goes, no, 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 I'll keep flying. So his people carry him like to the airplane, lift him in and out of the airplane. And he continues to fly all these observation flights until the lines more or less settle back out. And then at that point, he takes about three weeks to uh, let his foot heal up. And uh, because of this, he's really starting to make a name for himself. He's got the Zeppelin attack. He's got the injury now. where he flew, he flew through all that. And so by June, they promote him to captain, and they make him a flight commander. So the basic organization of the Air Force for England back then and even for America today is that you have a squadron, which will have a squadron commander, and, you know, he's the guy who really kind of owns a certain amount of airplanes and runs the squadron. And then there's a some amount of flights beneath him, two or three flights. And a flight uh, back then was probably about four pilots today, might be about 10, depending how the squadron is made up. But Leno is made a flight commander. So he's got about four pilots to take care of. And he's flying the FE-2B, two-seater right now. And then he starts to fly the Bristol Scout. And he equips his scout. We've talked about this inventive mind. He equips it with a machine gun. And this is about the time of the Fokker Eindecker, but the British have not figured out the interrupter gear. So he mounts his machine gun about 45 degrees off to his left. So it shoots just past the propeller propeller's arc. And it's a very, very difficult thing to aim with. You had to either get, you know, 45 degrees off from your target or get behind your target and then kick the airplane over with the rudder so that you're actually uh, slipping through the air or skidding through the air and then aim that way, which was very, very difficult. But kind of reminds me of like spotlighting deer. You got like your rifle out the window of the truck 
oh. kind of at a 45 degree angle and you're driving around and trying to shoot and drive at the same time. Yeah, that's basically what he's doing, except uh, instead of deer, he's trying to shoot at people who are also shooting back at him. So it's pretty difficult. And he has some success of at least driving the Germans off with this in early June. Um, but on July 25th, he went from driving off the Germans to shooting down the Germans. And so he spots and attacks two German airplanes on the German side of the lines, and he fires a full drum of ammunition at both of them. But he's got a lot of bullets coming back his way. He said there were rounds striking all around his head. Anti-aircraft fire starts kicking up, and they basically are able to drive him off before he's able to verify what has happened with the planes that he has shot. Once he's back on his side of the lines, he finds another German, and then let me know if this reminds you of anyone, Mr. Chow. He says that once he saw the German, he maneuvered into the sun, his favorite ruse, uh, and then he dove on his unsuspecting enemy and held his fire until he was so close he could not miss. Sounds like his uh, opponent there wasn't following the Dick DeBolka and well, it fell, sounds, fell for a ruse. Well, it sounds like Leno Hawker was following the Dick DeBolka, and the Dick DeBolka is not even out yet, right? And it's funny, the one nickname that Leno Hawker has gained throughout the years is the British Bolka, and this is part of the reason why, right? He also used many of the same tactics that Bolka did. And so he held his fire until he was so close he could not miss, and he did not miss. So the German plane bursts into flames, turns upside down, it crashes. And not only does he get this kill, but the German observer is found with a map that precisely marks the British artillery positions and also four German artillery positions, so it's kind of a double whammy there. They also are able to verify that at least one of the planes he shot at on the German side of the lines was destroyed because people could see it from the front lines. And he gets at least two kills, if not the hat trick. I'm going to give him the hat trick. And because of this, he is given the Victoria Cross, which is the English version of the Medal of Honor. And he is the first pilot to receive that for aerial combat. So not a bad day's work. Do you think one day... There will be a Chinese fighter pilot that's known as the Chinese brass. Like I'm talking like down the road after after the battle for Taiwan, right? Yeah. You know After the battle for Taiwan, after I write my book on tactics. Or do you think he'll be the Chinese Mr. Chow? That, <laughs> I don't know. I Is think that, uh, yeah. Are you the American Mr. Chow? I, I suppose yeah. you are the American Mr. Chow already. So we need a Chinese Mr. Brass. Could be yeah, I don't know. And the good times kept rolling for Leno Hawker, at least for a while. On August 11th, his brother T is in the trenches nearby, and he's watching with a telescope as an FV is attacked by a small monoplane near Lille. And it looked like the FE was unaware and was just going to get gunned by this monoplane. But the last minute the FE pitches into the monoplane, he sees the two planes pass each other, and then the small monoplane dive into the ground crash and the fe flew off and what he didn't realize and by he i mean t leno's brother is that t had just watched leno score his seventh at this point air-to-air kill and uh he got to see all of that from the front lines and so very quickly leno was able to get a lot of air-to-air success just between about july and august of 1915 he shoots down seven airplanes he becomes an ace 
and he is now like the leading ace of the entire RFC. And all of this helps a whole lot with the ladies back home. All of a sudden, the guy who Beatrice didn't have time for has his name and picture in the paper. They're writing about the fighting hawkers, right? They're writing about this guy basically getting the Medal of Honor. And so when, in September, Leno is granted some leave, all of a sudden, Beatrice is uh, a little bit more receptive to the idea as he goes and hangs out with her. Maybe he should have proposed on a boat. He should have proposed on the boat. That was my method, actually. So I proposed on a rowboat. Mr. Chow was there. Um, and because I didn't have my name on the paper, that's why I proposed on the boat, because I had the extra help of the implication. Right? You're I out. thought you were just trying to one-up my island with a boat. Well, there was that, too. But it's also, you know, again, because I'm not a famous fodder pilot, I'm just an average fodder pilot. I figured, do it on a boat. That way, you know, if she said no, obviously... It's no, you know what I mean? But the implication. Yeah. You're Limited the water. Yeah. You know, things could flip over. Things happen. But uh, <laughs> for Leno, that wasn't a problem because he was the famous fighter pilot. So he gets home in September. And this is something actually the British did a lot more than the Germans. If you were a good pilot and you've been out there for a year, they would bring you back. Well, they would bring everybody back, not just if you were good. But they bring everyone back for uh, a leave after about a year on the front lines to give them a rest and help them uh, train the new batch of pilots. And this helped spread the knowledge throughout the RFC. And not only is Leno brought back to train some of the new pilots, he's also brought back to stand up a new squadron, which was number 24 squadron. And this was a very special squadron because it was going to be their first all fighter squadron before it was all observation planes, but they were going to outfit this squadron with the DH-2, which we'll get to later, but it was their kind of response to the Fokker Scourge. Because the Fokker Scourge, at the end of 1915, got so bad that some politicians were calling it murder to send their airmen up against these Fokkers with no real fighter plane in response. So uh, he's back in September. He's setting up this new squadron. He's also tasked with uh, defending England from the Zeppelins at night. So it's definitely not like all just, uh, you know, hanging out on the beach during this leave. But he does have a good time. And one of my favorite anecdotes, again, I have a lot of favorite anecdotes, stories. It's a trend. Comments. It's a trend item for me. We'll debrief that appropriately, and I'll come up with a new word for it. But one of my favorite things is that he uh, he goes to a few squadrons, and they say that, you know, they had a lot of pianos in the bars back then. And... They, in one instance, there was this like classically trained pianist playing piano at the bar. He rips the guy off the piano. He starts playing and singing absolutely terribly, but he just brings the house down because he's confident about it. And this reminds me of... Yourself? My, this reminds me of me. No, not so much me, but the situation. Okay, Mr. Chow. Uh, at my naming, which was in Romania, you were there. You remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in a field in Romania, and I had to sing a song. I'm notoriously bad at singing. That's what reminds me of me. And I sing this song, and I, I have to prove myself, right? So I'm singing it by myself, and it's terrible. I think Risky was there. Wasn't Risky singing with you? He wasn't singing with me. He was watching. Hmm. We, it was, this was my, my moment to shine. Okay. And uh, it's a terrible, I mean, 
I'm I'm just tone deaf, okay? But what happens is, as I'm ringing out my one last off-key note, a MiG-21 rips overhead at about 200 feet and 500 miles an hour. Just, at the exact minute I finished the song. You couldn't have timed it better. And everyone just breaks out into applause. And what we didn't know is that the squadron commander of the Romanian MiG-21 squadron knew we were going to do a naming there and just decided to give us a flyby. And it just timed it absolutely perfect. They all told me to shut the hell up and never sing again because I'm terrible. But it just couldn't have timed better with the actual flyby of the MiG-21. And uh, that's my favorite uh, story of me singing. And it will always be my favorite story of me singing. Uh, but anyways, this is kind of the leave that, that uh, Leno Hawker is having for a few months now. And in February, he's tasked to take his new squadron and go back over the channel and fight Max Immelman and Oswald Boca and the Fokker Scourge. And what I want to do is do a quick baseball card on the DH2. For those that don't know, a baseball card is kind of what Intel will give us on a particular fighter. So they might be like, okay, this is a baseball card on the Su-27, and then they give you all the characteristics of the Su-27. So Brass will do that for you for uh, for the DH. Right. So here's the DH-2, a.k.a. the de Havilland 2. It's a pusher uh, biplane with a machine gun mounted in front of the pilot. So they still don't got the interrupter gear. They're putting the engine behind the wings and behind the, the pilot so he can have a forward-firing machine gun. Uh, it has a large rotary engine, so the entire engine spins, not just a range in a circle. It actually spins, okay? And it does have a better turn radius, so it, it's a better turning airplane than the Fokker. It can climb faster than the Fokker, and it's a little bit faster than the Fokker. But, man, it's ugly. But, man, it is an ugly airplane, which is a sin. And what's worse than it being ugly is its nickname, which happens to be quite true of the DH-2. It's nicknamed the Spinning Incinerator, which... That's something you want to climb inside. Yeah, I don't want to necessarily fly something called the Spinning Incinerator. Okay, so the airplane has a tendency to go into spins when you least expect it, and it's because of that big rotary engine, which is mounted behind the pilot. And so uh, he's, got a, he's got an issue with this spinning incinerator. The other thing that's not great about the spinning incinerator is that the machine gun was mounted on a swivel-type mount, so you were expected to fly the airplane with one hand and aim the machine gun with the other hand. That's not, uh, like, most people can't, you know, t- tap on their head and rub their stomach at the same time. Never mind fly an airplane and aim a machine gun with two separate hands. So a couple of problems with the DH-2. And when uh, number 24 squadron goes to France in February, the spinning incinerator lives up to its name. And so uh, two of Leno Hawker's best pilots die before they ever cross the front lines because they end up in spins and crash. And one of them crashed at a, another airfield that was uh, under the command of Major Hubbard from number 11 squadron. And this is what Major Hubbard writes to Leno after one of Leno's pilots die at that airfield. He says, if your pilots want to kill themselves, could they please do it on their own aerodrome? Jesus Christ. Holy crap. Like that is, uh, I feel like I've got a pretty, robust sense of humor it's hard to offend me boy that's pretty tough just after one of your guys dies but i think it shows how 
numb these guys were to to pilots dying and also just death in general in World War One. A little bit of that British humor too, uh, which they're so well known for. Sort of a Monty Python sketch. Look at that guy died over there. Yeah. Um, but anyways, the the serious part of this is Hawker. Well, a guy dying is pretty serious. But the other part of this is that Hawker has a crisis on his hands. Okay. His pilots are back at the mess, and they're basically saying, we can't fly this freaking thing. We're all going to die, and we're not even going to get killed by the Germans. We're going to get killed by our own airplane. And Leno Hawker walks out of the mess. He orders the DH-2 to be brought up. He gets in. He flies it up over the airfield, and he purposely puts it into a spin and then recovers. And he didn't know he could do that. He was testing out a theory he had. But he puts it in spin, he recovers, he climbs back up, he spins it the other way, he recovers. He spins it and spins it and spins it and recovers and recovers and recovers while all of the pilots of number 24 squadron look on. He then lands and goes, don't worry, guys, I know how to get it out of a spin. And talk about jingry, dude. Talk about something you don't want to do but have to do. This is one of those things that if he doesn't do this, I mean, number 24 squadron is not a fighting squadron. The morale of a fighter squadron can, shall we call it, spin on a dime, right? It can spin into the ground like that guy did, or it can spin up, you know, to get ready and fight a Fokker. And if he doesn't go out and do do that, like, his pilots have no confidence that they can take the fight to the Germans, but now they do. I I can't say enough about that moment for Leno Hawker. Um, And under his... His guidance, number 24 squadron, is now confident enough to bring the fight to the Germans. And because the DH-2 is actually better than the Fokker in a lot of ways in combat, and the French have also fielded the Newport 11, which has a lot of benefits, the Fokker surge basically comes to an end. And um, we know that in June of 1916, Immelman dies. Bulk is sent away from the front, and now they really start to establish air dominance. And a lot of that has to do with Leno Hawker's squadron. And in June, Hawker posts his tactical orders of the day that summarizes his intent, I think, quite clearly and quite concisely. And his orders of the day are attack everything, which is pretty badass to put up for your orders of the day. And his squadron goes out and they do that. They attack all the German airplanes they can find. They attack German ground troops. They attack trains. And they become a pest to everyone on the front lines who happens uh, to be German. And he's kind of out there sneaking sorties in too, right? Like he's not supposed to be flying because he's a commander, and yet he's going out and flying every day. Yeah, that's a great point and a big difference between the British and the Germans. If you were a squadron commander, which is obviously what Leno is now, he wasn't supposed to be flying patrols anymore. But he, he was a fighter pilot, and he wanted to fly. And so he is sneaking patrols out. He doesn't go over the lines as much as he used to, but he's still flying. And one thing he would do, which I think, again, proves just like, I don't know, the character of the man, is that a lot of times guys were very nervous if their last sortie came up before to leave. You know, a little bit of superstition. This is the last one. I'm probably going to die on my last flight. And he would take that flight so his pilots could basically be free and clear and then go home. Uh And when he's not flying, the other thing that he does is he continues with that inventive mind that we talked about. He's still a young man. He's 25 years old. Like, he's a very young man. 
And he invents a few different things. First off, he invents what's called Fug Boots. So maybe the precursor to the Ugg Boots. I don't know if uh, you know Tom Brady could have modeled them for him back then, maybe make Leno Hawker a millionaire. But he makes these Fug Boots, which keep his uh, airmen from getting frostbite, essentially, because they're in a freaking open cockpit plane uh, without anything in front of them. They don't have a windscreen. Uh, so, like, if you see pictures of these guys flying, they look like Vikings. They're wearing, f- like, total fur everything just to keep them from getting frostbite. So he invents some new boots for them. He invents a forward-firing sight and an upward-firing sight, which at the time was, like, top secret. So he basically found a way to make use of this swivel, which really wasn't very practical. A high, a high off boresight weapon. There. And it's the first high off boresight. So if, the, if an airplane was above you a couple thousand feet, it was like, freaking forget about it. We're never going to climb up that high. But he invented a site where, hypothetically, you could put that machine gun more or less like 90 degrees up and then try and shoot the plane. I don't know if it was all that effective, but you can see just the guy always has the wheels turning. You know what I mean? And then uh, the other thing that he came up with, which is a rule we still have in fighter squadrons today, is no beer could be had until the flying was done for the day. So the beer light was never came on until the last sortie landed, which is something we still do. Probably a good rule. It is a good rule. So at this point in time, you know, June 1916, morale's booming. Immelman's dead. Bulka's out in the east. Fokker scourge is over. And then the generals had to go and ruin pretty much everything. So they start the Battle of the Somme. Okay, because what's going on to the south of the British right now is Verdun. And the French are kind of taking a freaking beating on the ground there. And so the Somme was always a planned joint offensive between the British and the French. Because the French are taking a beating in Verdun, it becomes mostly British-led offensive. And the Germans more or less know what's coming. And it's a disaster. 20,000 British troops are killed in one day. So they just basically sprinted into, you know, curtains of fire from the Germans. There's some limited success, enough success to bring troops from Verdun up to the Somme, relieve some pressure on the French. Um, but it, it it's pretty brutal. And, you know, the morale, they still have a air dominance at the time. But because there's this big offensive, the Germans go, hey, Bolka, we need you back up at the front. And he comes up, not just him. But he forms Yasta too. So Polka, if you remember from our episode on him, he forms the first true German uh, fighting or fighter squadron. And so you have the first British fighter squadron under Leno Hawker. And now you have the first German fighter squadron under Oswald Polka. And uh, Oswald Polka's mentee is the Red Baron. So this is like this absolutely epic fight now. You can't make up how intertwined these stories are. No, you can't. incredible. The soap opera continues, and now you have... And they're not just happening at the same time. They're fighting each other. Like, their pilots are now actively fighting each other, and it's just absolutely ferocious fighting. And uh, it's just so incredible that's happening, uh, you know, under now the biggest battle of World War I, which is the Somme. And... uh, the other kind of ace in the hole the Germans had is they released the Albatross, which we've talked about the Albatross before in observation planes, but now they've made a fighter. And the fighter is basically better than the DH-2 in everything but turn radius. Okay, so it's, it can climb uh, better. It's faster. It's better armed. It's got two synchronized machine guns. 
And so Yasta 2 is flying with the, the Albatross. And as we talked about with Bolka, Bolka gets 20 kills in two months. For comparison's sake, Little Hawker still has seven kills, okay? And Bolka wraps up 10 just in the month of September. Um, but the fighting is ferocious. And in one dogfight with RFC uh, number 24 squadron, so Leno Hawker's squadron, Bolka is killed in that midair collision with his own uh, formation member. But it was still Leno Hawker's squadron that he was fighting. And this is a huge blow to the Germans, as you can imagine, and a huge weight off the shoulders of the British even though they say that every officer of RFC-24 would far rather have welcomed to their mess uh, Bolka, you know, as a prisoner rather than have killed him in such a way. And so there was a ton of mutual respect there, but it was like, this guy who's been killing all of us is finally out of the picture. It doesn't doesn't necessarily seem honorable either that he went down in a mid-air collision, right? No, I think that there's something about a good death. Cheapens it a little bit. Yeah, I think... There's something to be said about a good death, and you know perhaps we'll get to that later. Uh, but what happens is at the end of October, Bulk is dead. The Somme is coming to a close, and Hawkers basically do another uh, week of leave. And so he comes home for a few days for a well-earned rest, and he sees Beatrice. And Beatrice is finally wearing this brooch that he had given her years before as a symbol of his affection. And now she's finally wearing it. Things are going pretty well. And it looks like everything is moving towards an engagement now, one in which she'll say yes to. The other thing that seems to be happening for Hawker is that he's up for another promotion. So believe it or not, he's already, so he's already a major at this time. And now he's up to become a lieutenant colonel and be in charge of an entire wing. To give you an idea, like, our base is one wing. So he would be the commander of our entire base is what he is looking at as a 25-year-old. It's unbelievable. And so everything is going really, really well. He comes back to the front, uh, and at the front, things still seem to be going well for number 24 squadron. In November, uh, the new commander of Yasta 2 is Stefan Kiermeyer, And... Kiermeyer ends up in a dogfight with uh, number 24 squadron's best flight commander, okay, who is John Oliver Andrews. And Andrews is able to kill Kiermeyer. So now in a, the span of about 25 days, two commanders from Yasta 2 have been killed by RFC-24, or at least in combats with RFC-24, which is incredible. But there's been attrition on both sides. Okay, so there's been a lot of blood being shed. And so although he's not supposed to fly all that often, Hawker does find himself going into more patrols because he has less and less pilots to send out. And so the next day after Kiermaier uh, is killed, Leno Hawker finds himself on the wing of Andrews and they're crossing the lines and they see an observation plane. This was something that Hawker probably would have been pretty familiar with and used to attacking. So he starts to attack, and Andrews actually calls him off. Because at this point, Andrews actually has more fighting experience than Hawker does because Hawker hasn't been able to get in there as much uh, because he's a squadron commander. And the reason Andrews calls Hawker off the attack is because this is a ruse, and Andrews knows it. 
Hawker, at this time, though, he's so focused on the attack, he doesn't see the Andrews call him off. And so all these Albatross planes dive in on Hawker. Andrews, who himself is an absolutely terrific pilot, flies into the Albatross planes and basically breaks up their attack and gives Hawker enough warning to turn into them. And then it breaks up into this series of individual combats. Can you imagine trying to do that without radios? I don't even know how he would do it. Hey, no! And then the guy's gone, right? Right, yeah. Uh, And so you can understand the coordination was incredibly difficult, but they break up into all these individual combats. And now, dude, again, the soap opera of this thing, just the absolute drama of they break up in individual comments and combats, and how does it break up? Manfred von Richthofen, who at this point is not the Red Baron, but he is the new commander of Yasta II. For one day. For one day, ends up in a one-on-one dogfight with Leno Hawker, the commander of number 24 squadron, who was the you know, the commander of the squadron that more or less you could, you could claim killed Manfred von Richthofen's mentor and like best friend, Oswald Bolka. And now they're going at it, just them two. And they kind of spiral off by themselves. The rest of the fights kind of separate. And so it's just those two guys. And immediately, both of them know this is not a normal dogfight. Okay. Most dogfights are over in one to two minutes. And if you survive the initial attack, maybe one guy runs away, maybe he stays, but the skills are so mismatched that it's usually a very quick fight. But Richtofen writes in his own account in the Red Air Fighter that he had quickly discovered that it was not a novice he had to deal with because he had never dreamed of breaking off the fight. He had a five-turning box. However, my packing case was better at climbing than his, but I succeeded at last getting above and behind the Englishman. So they're in this fight... He's saying that, yeah, like, uh, Leno Hawker's DH2 can turn pretty good, but he can climb a little bit better. But the point is, they're in this more or less neutral fight for 30 minutes. Nobody's making any mistakes. And no one's making any mistakes. To put that in perspective, when I did that, like, DHC, uh, DCA guns-only sortie last week, I got into a kind of a long fight for our, for our purposes, a long fight. It was maybe three minutes, right? That's, in my mind, a long dogfight. This is 30 minutes of turning. And Rick Dofen goes on to write that the gallant fellow was full of pluck. And we had got down about 1,000 meters. He merrily waved to me as if to say, well, well, how do you do? The circle we made around each other was so narrow, there were not more than 80 to 100 meters. So these guys are just eyeballing each other across the circle and can't, neither one can kill the other. But Rick Dofen has a huge advantage because this is on the German side of the lines. And so as the fight continues, they drop in altitude and Hawker has a decision to make. He can't kill Richtofen. Richtofen can't kill him. And if he wanted to, Hawker could just land and basically submit to being a POW. Okay. His other option is to make a break for the lines. But in doing so, he knows that Richtofen is going to be able to kind of get into that control zone that we talk about because his turn circle is going to open up and Richtofen is going to have an opportunity to shoot him. So this is his moment of making this decision because the winds are blowing Hawker a little bit farther away and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're basically at the floor now. There's no more options. There's no tricks he can pull. He just has to either land or make a run for the lines. And this is the Jingri, right? This is... 
what do I do? How do I live honorably? And that's, to Leno Hawker, an easy choice. So he makes a break for the lines. And as he breaks for the lines, what he's doing is basically zigzagging. He's not that far away. He's, you know, a half mile away from the front lines. And as he's zigzagging, Rick Tofen's able to pounce, basically get into that control zone, and he starts peppering uh, Leno Hawker's DH2. And But Hawker's still fighting with every fiber of his being, right? He's basically spoiling every gunshot that Rick Tofen is, is lining up for. And Rick Tofen's running out of ammunition. And so when they're only a couple hundred yards behind the lines, and, and Rick Tofen, for reference here, wouldn't fly past the lines because it was too dangerous because he would run into ground fire from the British. When they're only a couple hundred yards away, Rick Tofen lines up, and he has only one or two trigger squeezes left. He's shot more than 900 of his 1,000 rounds. And as he lines up, he gets a good shot. He squeezes the trigger, and unfortunately for our friend Linnell Hawker, one round finds the back of Linnell Hawker's head. Linnell crashes in a farmer's field just yards short of the front lines, and Rick Tofen flies off, but knew what he had just done was special. And Rick Tofen goes to write that in view of the character of the fight, it was clear to him that he was being tackled by a flying champion. And that flying champion uh, was seen in the duel by Major von Schomburg and his staff, who were headquartered in the cellars of that same farm where Leno crashed. And the morning after the fight, a Lieutenant Bergman went out to the crash, and he reported back to the Major that Leno was still underneath the wreckage of his airplane. And because they had seen this fight and were so um, taken aback by the bravery of Leno Hawker, Major Schomburg, who was in charge of the German contingent there, said that such a brave enemy should be accorded all the honors due to him. And they buried Leno Hawker next to his airplane with full military honors. And he is still in that field in France to this day. And I'll, I'll say it again since I've been saying it all episode of my favorite little anecdote. And my favorite little anecdote to end with is that on Christmas 1912, before war pitted German against Englishmen, Leno went hunting with his father. And Leno's father said that he was getting too old for hunting because he had heard a friend of his had recently broke his neck when out hunting. And Leno's father said that, although that was tragic, there really is no more pleasant way to leave this world than to go out hunting. And a few weeks later, Leno, Leno's father was killed when he broke his neck out hunting. And I, we mentioned the idea of a good death earlier, and maybe this is too romantic, but I do like the idea that Leno himself went out hunting and that he died a good death when there were two options in front of him, he chose the harder path, the honorable path. And he went down in an honorable way against a worthy opponent. And if he had chose to land and become a POW, maybe he survives the war. Maybe he marries Beatrice. Maybe they have a happy, happily ever after. But he's certainly not the Leno Hawker hero that we understand him to be today. And if you'd like to know more about Leno Hawker, we use the book Hawker VC RFC Ace by his brother, Terrell Hawker. 
And we also used The Red Air Fighter by Manfred von Richthofen. And speaking of Richthofen, uh, we will be covering him on our next episode. Thanks for joining us on Fight History. Fight History is hosted by Brian Burke and Mark Silvers. Written by Brian Burke and produced by Mark Silvers. Music by Cody Martin. Check out our blog at www.fighthistory.com. <laughs>